Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. Uh, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only. He went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Well, from my personal experience in investigating the Christian faith, the thing that clinched it for me was the proof of the resurrection of Jesus. I read as much as I could when I was seeking and investigating to try and figure out if there was any other possible explanation that made any sense for the tomb being empty, for the resurrection happening, uh, as, as the uh, Bible said. And, and no other theory or explanation made any sense. And so uh, as I thought about that, the next question was, well, if Jesus did rise from the dead, uh, what does that mean? And so we're going we're gonna to answer these two questions today. Uh, we're going to, to talk about these two things. First thing I want to do is pro- to prove to you that the resurrection is an actual historical fact rooted in history in space and time. And the second thing I want to tell you about is why that matters to you today. Uh, Christianity is based on faith, but it's supported by facts. Uh, And I pray that the facts understood in your mind will lead to faith uh, cherished in your heart as as we look at the resurrection today. So, Uh, The first part of this, we're going to talk about the fact of the resurrection, and I'm going to tell you uh, the proofs of why we believe that the resurrection happened. And and the first thing I want to show you is that the tomb was empty. So the empty tomb is the first thing. Uh, They saw that he was where he was buried, and this is important because many will argue uh, that the the women actually went to the wrong tomb, and so uh, the tomb was empty because they went to the wrong tomb, and there was no one actually buried there. Well, Matthew 27, 59 through 61 says, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. And so it doesn't make sense that they didn't know where the tomb was. The Mary and the other women were standing right there On Friday night and Sunday morning, they certainly had not forgotten uh, where the tomb was by that point in time. And Mark's account even says that as they approached, uh, the stone had been rolled away already and there was an angel sitting there. So obviously this was not some other tomb. Uh, They clearly went to the right place. And so uh, it doesn't make sense to argue that they went to the wrong place. They knew where the tomb was. And then there was the grave security uh, that was uh, stationed at the tomb. 
this is important because people will argue, well, the body must have been stolen, right? Well, it's impossible that the body might have been stolen. Uh, so let's read what Matthew uh, says continuing on in verses 62 to 66. Now on the next day, that would be the day after the crucifixion and the burial, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So to secure the grave, they did two things. The first thing was they put a seal, a Roman seal, on that, uh, over that tomb, over the stone. And the second thing they did was to put a company of guards out there to be sure that nobody uh, messed with the grave. They wanted to be sure it was undisturbed. And so the penalty... Uh, for a Roman guard who failed in this duty was death. There was no other option. If you fail to fulfill your duty, you are killed. And so they uh, had a very much of a vested interest in not allowing this body to be stolen. They literally guarded the tomb with their lives. And so if you were a person who wanted to be uh, the one who was going to go steal this body, you'd have to sneak past this Roman guard who wanted to guard this tomb uh, with their very lives. Their very lives. And and if you wanted to do that uh, and you were caught, which you certainly would be, uh, you would be taken and you would be killed for revolution against Rome because to break the seal of, the Ro of Rome was a challenge uh, to, the, to the emperor and you certainly can't survive that. But if you were somehow uh, brazen enough and stealthy enough uh, to sneak past these guards, even though they're seated right in front of the tomb, and, and break that seal and, and roll this massive stone away and get inside that tomb, do you think you would spend time taking those linen wrappings off that body and leaving those linen wrappings there? Uh, that would be like robbing a bank and then sweeping the vault before you took off, right? You would take the money and get out of Dodge as fast as you could. Uh, these disciples, if they stole the body, would have taken that body and they would have ran like heck to get out of there and they would have dealt with these linen wrappings later. Uh, so the grave security uh, place there proves that the body could not have been stolen. Third, the Jewish authorities admitted uh, that the tomb was empty. And we see this as the story continues from Matthew. He says, Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did just as they had been instructed. And this story has been widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. So these Jews know that the tomb is empty. And what do they do? They try to cover it up. And they try to cover it up by bribing these Roman guards. And so obviously they know the tomb is empty. They know where the tomb is. And they're trying to figure out a way to hide it because then the last deception the deception that Jesus uh, said he would rise from the dead is worse than the first deception. And so I just told you a minute ago that these Romans would have to guard this tomb with their lives, and if they failed, they would be killed. 
So they're in trouble now because this body is gone and they're about to be killed. And now these influential Jews come to them uh, with a plot that they've hatched. Now, uh, these guards knew that they were going to be killed. Uh, so what do they do? They, they have no choice really but to put their trust in these Jews. But, but these aren't just run-of-the-mill people. These are the very people who are influential and powerful enough uh, to have Jesus wrongly convicted and then to influence Pilate enough uh, and have him bow to their wishes uh, that Jesus be crucified. And so these are influential Jews. Of the, and then, of course, a large sum of money never hurts to grease the skids of injustice, right? And so you have this bribery going on, uh, but the guards really have no choice. They take the money, they trust the Jews because they know their only other option is to go to the Romans, tell them what happened, which means certain death. So the Jews knew that the tomb was empty, and then the Jews and the Romans would both have been very motivated to produce this body. The last thing the Jews or the Romans would have wanted would have been for that tomb to be empty. Uh, for the Jews, uh, that's why they asked Pilate for the guard in the first place, because they knew that if he did rise from the dead like he said he would, well, that would validate all the claims to divinity that Jesus had made uh, during his lifetime. You remember from our study in Acts that we've been working on over the past couple months, uh, these disciples were preaching the gospel in the very place where the resurrection happened, right? They're in Jerusalem, just in the temple courts and outside the temple courts, right where Jesus was buried. And so these Jewish authorities, when they're coming to arrest John and Peter, they would say, yeah, come, come with us, boys. I want to show you the, 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 the body in the tomb, right? They certainly would have done that, but they couldn't do that because the tomb uh, was empty. They would have produced a body if they could have. Uh, they knew the tomb was empty, and you can bet that they were scouring the countryside, uh, looking for a body and in interrogating any witness they could possibly find to figure out some alternative as to where this body was. And so uh, the Jews did not want that tomb to be empty. And for the Romans, well, the Romans sentenced Jesus to death, and so he's supposed to be dead. And if he's not dead, then somebody failed in their duty. Or if somebody stole the body, well, then somebody didn't properly guard the body, and somebody has to pay for that, too. It's an embarrassment for Rome. They are uh, the kings of this area. They're the authority. So for uh, an execution to have failed or for a body to be stolen uh, is really a slap in the face to the Romans. So they want to produce that body as much as the Jews did. But they couldn't produce it because it was not in the tomb, because Jesus was alive. Here's an interesting thing. The, the tomb was not made into a shrine. Do you know that in the first century, like if, if you had a holy man's bones, uh, you would bury those bones and then the people would come and they would set up a shrine in front of it and they would kind of worship that shrine. Uh, but they didn't do this here because Jesus wasn't in that tomb. He only rented the tomb for the weekend, right? And he was gone. Uh, and so what happens is, you know, they don't even know where the tomb was uh, because the tomb is not the story, right? The risen Christ is the story. And that's why we don't even know where the tomb is uh, even to this day. And finally, the fact that the tomb was discovered by women uh, is an incredible proof of the truth of this story. I want you to take yourself out of the 21st century as much as you can and put yourself back into the first century and understand that the testimony of women was absolutely worthless, had no value whatsoever. It would not even be heard. Uh, and so if this story was made up, the author would never, ever, 
ever use women as his uh, first witnesses to the resurrection, to this empty tomb. That would never happen in a million years. And I mean no offense to you ladies today. That's just the way it was in the first century. That's the way uh, testimony was. It was a male-dominated society, and the testimony of women wasn't worth anything. This would be like uh, putting a convicted felon on the stand today as your star witness uh, and expecting the jury to believe him, right? I mean, he has no credibility, and that's the same way it was. So the fact that women are used here is very strong evidence that the story is true and happened just as Luke reported. And it's also strong evidence that Jesus loves women because what a privilege it is to be the ones who are allowed to discover this empty tomb. That, that could have been reserved for the apostles, but Jesus allowed women to be the ones who discovered that tomb. So the tomb was empty. The body was not inside. Where was Jesus? Well, he's alive, and he's appearing to witnesses. So the first proof is that the tomb was empty. The second proof is that he is appearing to people. There are 15 appearances of the uh, risen, living Lord and Savior recorded in the New Testament. And he appeared to Mary Magdalene, and he appeared to the women returning from the tomb, and then to Peter later that same day. He appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and to the apostles without Thomas, and then a little bit later to the apostles with Thomas, and then to the seven by the lake of Tiberias, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee, and then to 500 plus believers on a mountain in Galilee. And then he appeared to James, and he appeared to the 11, and then he appeared at the Ascension, and he appeared to Paul uh, in Acts chapter 9, and he appeared to Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and to Paul in the temple, and finally to John in the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. Paul said that most of those 500 witnesses uh, on the Galilean mountain were still alive, even though some had died. Uh, 500 plus witnesses is a lot of witnesses, and Paul was saying, go ask them. They saw him uh, themselves, and you can go ask them yourself. And all of those people had seen the risen Lord, but the most striking thing about these people is not that they had seen him so much as that their lives had been transformed by seeing him. So you have the empty tomb, you have these appearances, and now you have transformed lives. Let's look at the life of James. He's Jesus' half-brother. During his lifetime, he doesn't even believe in Jesus, but after Jesus dies, how does James start out his epistle, the, the epistle of James, the brother of Jesus that we have in the Bible? It says, James, a bondservant of God and, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a changed heart. He became the leader of the Jerusalem church from an unbeliever to the leader of Jerusalem church, which we'll see in Acts chapter 15. And James was martyred by being thrown off of a building. And when that, that didn't kill him, they stoned him to death. Uh, that was the, the end of James's life. How about Peter? He's the one who denied Christ three times and was cowering in an upper room for fear of the Jews and the Romans. And yet he sees the resurrected Lord in Jesus Christ and suddenly he becomes the spokesman for this band of 11 people who are taking the gospel out to the world now. And he preached to the Jews and then he preached to the Jewish authorities. And, and tradition has it that finally uh, in Rome under Nero, he was crucified upside down because he said that he was not worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is Paul. Uh, Paul, a, a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, uh, zealous beyond his peers for, uh, the, for, for Judaism. And what happens to Paul? He sees 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had been the one who had go, was going about persecuting Christians and arresting them and having them killed wherever he went. And, and while on his way uh, to Damascus, in, engaged in this task, he sees the risen Lord Jesus Christ and he knocks him off his horse. And you could say that Paul's life was changed, right? Uh, from that moment on, he goes about preaching that Jesus actually is God, the Lord himself. And what happens to Paul over the next 30 years? Uh, he is beaten, he is whipped, he is scourged, he is stoned, he is shipwrecked, he is tortured uh, for the sake of the gospel. And uh, he was also uh, killed under Nero in Rome in about uh, 67 AD or so. Thomas. Thomas was doubting Thomas. That's his name, right? Uh, when we hear about Thomas in the upper room, he says, I will not believe unless I stick my fingers in his sides and see him for myself. And a few days later, Jesus appeared and Thomas did put his fingers in Jesus's wounds. And he says, my Lord and my God. And Thomas took the gospel to India and he became the first missionary to India and tradition has it that he was martyred in India. Well, what about the rest of the apostles? You know, I could tell you that story for each and every apostle except for the apostle John. They were all martyred for their faith and for preaching the gospel. You know, people may go to their deaths if they're deceived about something but nobody goes to their death knowing that something is a lie. And that's what these guys did. They went to their deaths because they knew that the tomb was empty. They had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. They preached the gospel and they went to their deaths because of the truth of what they saw. So we have all of these apostles and then you have finally the church. The resurrection is the only thing that can explain the church. The apostles were so sure of what they saw that this band of 11 people uh, took the gospel to the entire world. And over the past 2,000 years, how many people have been converted to Christianity and how many people have been martyred because of their faith in Christianity? We've already seen in studying the early chapters of Acts that uh, these guys were preaching the gospel and the Lord was adding to their number every day. And the Lord is still doing that today. Praise God. Well, I can tell you as a former attorney that the resurrection is a dream case, right? This has got everything you would want if you had to prove to a judge uh, that the resurrection actually happened. You have an empty tomb. They could not produce a body. You have 500 plus witnesses. That's a lot of witnesses. If you line them up all on the stand, you'd be there for weeks taking their testimony. And then uh, you have the transformed lives. What can explain uh, the lives of these guys from cowering in a room to going out, preaching the gospel and being willing to die uh, for what they had seen. Only, the, only uh, the resurrection explains that. And so uh, the only logical conclusion is that he came out of the tomb, uh, resurrected uh, by the power of God as a divine work of God, just like he said he would in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. It says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So that's the fact of the resurrection. It happened just as Jesus predicted, and it was accomplished by God. And there is so much more proof that I could give you. This is just skimming the basic top of it. But I think 
You've heard enough already uh, to be convinced. And I pray that if you are seeking or investigating Christianity today as I was, that you will spend some time studying the proof of the resurrection. And I think you'll find that the proof of it is absolutely compelling and no other explanation uh, makes any sense. But now we've talked about the fact of the resurrection. Let's talk about the meaning of the resurrection. All right, so 2,000 years ago in some remote corner of the world that uh, we've, most of us have never been to, uh, some guy named Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So what? What does that have to do with me? Well, it's got everything to do with you. I'm glad you asked, so we're going to tell you. Uh, there is a problem with the human race, and the problem is sin. And the solution to the problem of sin is Jesus. The human predicament, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know, that is one of the most, if not the most, divisive statements that has ever been made. And we're going to talk about that. So the first thing that I want you to see here is that uh, we are blocked from getting to God. There's something that's in the way, right? We need help to get to God. So when you read this statement, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's something between us and God, and we can't get to him. And that thing is sin. Um, and so let me show you this very famous bridge illustration. On the left side of this illustration, you have mankind in his sin. Uh, and on the right side, you have God uh, in all his holiness. And there's this huge chasm in between mankind and God. And we cannot cross over that chasm to get from where we are to where God is. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And Hebrews 9.27 says that it is given unto man once to die and then the judgment. So we have a problem. We've all sinned. We're all going to die. And then we are going to be judged for our sin. We've all sinned. We can't hope to get into heaven by having been a good person, by whatever standard of good we might want to judge ourselves by. And we can't get into heaven based on the thought that our good deeds might outweigh our bad deeds because that's not the standard that God uses, even though that's a standard that we might like to use. Uh, the Bible is clear. God is holy. God is just. God is perfect. And he must punish sin. So sin, even one sin, equals death. No heaven, no exceptions. That's the bad news. Thankfully, there is good news, and we call it the gospel. Uh, the gospel is from the Greek word euangelion, and it just means good news. Gospel means good news. And that's what we're talking about now. The good news is that God made a way for us to get to heaven, even though we can't get there by ourselves. If we had to depend on anything that we have done to get to heaven, not one of us could go. But because we believe in what Jesus has done for us to get to heaven, each and every one of us can go to heaven based on what Jesus has done. And that's why Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ built this bridge between the chasm on the left side, our sin, and God and his holiness on the right side. And we can cross over because of the cross. I just said that God is holy and he's perfect and he's just and he can't let sinners into heaven. But you see what I just said there? Christ built that bridge and now sinners can cross over if we place our faith in him. Uh, what God did was he sent Jesus born as a baby uh, to become a man 
and we celebrate that as, as Christmas. But Christmas is only the beginning of the story, right? Christmas is the incarnation, but he came for a purpose. He came to live a perfect life, the life that we cannot live, uh, and so that he would be qualified to be the sacrifice on our behalf that God demands for sin. Sin has to be paid for in blood, and Jesus' blood paid the sin. The story is told that there was once a a tribe, uh, and this tribe was led by a chief, and this tribe was suffering from the effects of thievery in its camp. Uh, Food was scarce, and the members of the tribe were beginning to steal from each other, and so uh, the chief knew that this thievery would destroy the whole tribe. So he made a law saying that the next person caught stealing is going to be brought into the middle of the public square and have their hands tied to a post, and they're going to be whipped uh, until they are quite bloody. Well, wouldn't you know it, the very next day, uh, somebody steals, and that person is caught. And to the shock of the camp, it's the chief's own mother, an old and frail woman who has been caught stealing. And, and so what is the chief going to do? He's established this law, and he's perfectly just, so he has to carry it out. But he's also perfectly loving, so what's he going to do? Is love going to prevail, or is justice going to prevail? And so he calls his mother into the middle of the camp and has her wrists tied to the post. And then he calls the punisher with his whip forward. Uh, and he, as just as the punisher is about to administer the punishment, uh, the chief stands up and walks over to his mother and covers his mother with his own body and then tells the punisher to go ahead and administer the punishment. And he takes all the punishment that his mother deserved. And so at the same time, he upholds his justice by administering the, pun- the punishment. He still shows that he is a chief of And that's what Christ has done for us. He took the punishment that was ours. He took it on his back, the punishment that God had to administer to be just. He administered to himself in the form of Jesus because he is also loving. And that is what the cross is all about. We're all guilty of breaking God's laws. We have all done things that deserve the punishment of death, and and he had to be holy, and yet he was loving at the same time. And and that's why Jesus died on the cross, and and he was laid in a tomb, and as we've seen, uh, the tomb could not hold him. He rose from the dead, and the resurrection means that God was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. And the resurrection means that Jesus has conquered death itself. And the resurrection means that because God raised Jesus up, we know that God can raise us up too. And that is the hope for the faith that we have. But how do we claim the benefits of Jesus' death on the cross? Like if you have won the lottery and you're holding the winning lottery ticket, that isn't anything until you actually cash the ticket in. And then the benefits of winning the lottery are bestowed on you, right? So here's how you cash in this winning lottery ticket of Jesus' gift to you of his death on the cross. You admit that you're a sinner, and you ask for him to forgive your sin, and you believe the gospel, which is just so simply this. Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. That's it. Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. And you believe that. You, you trust that he died for you and that he is able to take you to heaven with him. And when you die and you go to heaven and God asks you why I should let you in, you will say to him, because of the blood of Jesus, because Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, and I come in his name, not in anything that I have done. And if you say that, you will hear, 
well done, good and faithful servant, and you'll be admitted into the kingdom. And if you say, I did this and I did that, well, you're going to find that that's not the right answer. Uh, it's based on what Jesus did, and you'll find yourself shut out of heaven. So believe the gospel. He died for my sins and rose from the dead, and God will find, uh, you will find yourself approved by God. And so uh, that's what I wanted to talk to you next about, is that the second thing I want you to see in this John 14, 6 statement is that not only do we, are we blocked from getting to God and we don't have a way to get to God, there is only one way to get to God. So we need help to get there, and there's only one who can help us get there, and that's Jesus. There's no exceptions. There is no other way. Uh, it's very popular in our culture now to hear that all roads lead to heaven, all roads lead to God. That is not true. Jesus is the only way, and that's why this is the most divisive statement probably ever uttered. There is no other way for Muslims. There's no other way for Hindus. There's no other way for Jews. There's no other way for atheists or anybody else you can name. Jesus is the only way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when you believe, you walk across that bridge that Jesus built, and you get to be with God forever and ever. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And this is not something that we do. It's a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. All you need to do is to receive this gift. That's all you have to do. And so I'm going to ask you, what is your response to this? What's your response? About 16 years ago, I had reached a point in my life where I did not want to go on being an atheist without at least having investigated the truth claims of Christianity. I thought that that was intellectually dishonest to continue doing that. And I wanted to find out the truth for myself. And at the time, there was really no stronger atheist around than me. You can ask my family. Uh, so, uh, but what I did was I investigated it. And that's, that's God, right? That is the Holy Spirit drawing an atheist who wants no part of God. That was a work of God alone. I would never have done that by myself. God was drawing me. And as he drew me to investigate the claims of Christianity, uh, I found the proofs absolutely compelling. Uh, and, and I need to find proof compelling before I'm going to buy into something. And, and I, I just found it was absolutely uncontrovertible. And I made the decision to trust Christ for my salvation. And incredibly, I am the pastor of a church now. And if you had told me 20 years ago that I would be the pastor of a church uh, and 20 years later, uh, I would have thought that you were crazier than a one-eyed bat. Uh, so, uh, but yet here I am. Here I am standing up here. And here you are. And you have a decision to make, maybe. Maybe some of you have a decision to make. Um, you've heard the proof of the resurrection. Uh, you've heard why it matters. You've heard why it's important to you. So I ask you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today and, and be saved from the punishment from your sin. You can know today that you have eternal life from him. And so all you have to do is receive him. And so I'm going to ask us all to bow our heads now. And if you happen to be here, and if you have never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you want to, I would ask that you pray this prayer with me. Father, I know that I have broken your laws, and my sins have separated me from you. 
I am truly sorry, and now I want to turn away from my past sinful life and toward you. Please forgive my sins, Lord. I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, died for my sins, was resurrected from the dead, and is alive, and hears my prayers. Save me from the punishment that I deserve, Lord. Thank you for bearing my sins and giving me eternal life. In Jesus' name, I pray. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, well, then I welcome you to the family of God. And if I can help you in any way uh, with the beginning of your Christian walk, I would love to serve you uh, in that way. And so I praise God for each and every one of you. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen Amen. Lord God, I thank you for the marvelous, incredible, wonderful story of the gospel. Lord, the whole counsel of God is absolutely mind-blowing and staggering. And Lord, we only understand the smallest bit of it, but we do understand enough to be saved, Lord. You died for our sins and rose from the dead, and you've proven that we can have eternity with you as well, uh, simply by receiving the gift that you have given, Lord, by receiving the gift of your death on the cross and your resurrection, Lord, we can know that we have eternal life with you. And Lord, if there is anybody in this room uh, who is wrestling with this, who is struggling with this, I pray that today is the day, Lord, that you would be drawing them to yourself and that you would regenerate them today, Lord, and, and let them receive the Holy Spirit, Lord. And and if there is anyone in this room who uh, has questions, I pray that they would be bold enough to ask uh, and let the Holy Spirit have its way, Lord. I thank you for the gospel, Lord. By it we are saved. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.